it is. It is now. Oh yeah, we could have. Well, take two. All right. Hmm. Suddenly gonna get hotter. Suddenly gonna get hotter. All right. This is gonna okay. Much like when we read the critique of the Gotha program, and we were just in a sweltering attic trying to yeah, like yeah, yeah. Was get that, through that. That reading. was that's got to be warmer than this, right? Like, uh, that was yeah. hot. That was very hot. I'm more uncomfortable now because I've been uncomfortable all day. Then it was yeah. just like thrown into an attic. Discuss marks. Pretend like you know what you're talking yeah. about. Now it's like we're talking we about anarchists. Three days man. of discomfort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Three yeah. days of discomfort. We're going to talk about anarchism, and we're going to talk about the. <laughs> Um, impending yes. uh, ecological collapse yeah. as it was evident in 1979. Yeah, yeah exactly. Apparently. Um, coming off the last two days, it's been pretty pretty weird. I've been feeling very apocalyptic, I think, again. Um, just because you get that kind of concrete smack in the face every now and then. A couple of months ago, I forget exactly when it was, the weather around here uh, for the royal listener, south of England, southeast of England, um, Strongest winds the UK had ever had, I think. It was like, where we are, it was like 80 degree winds. It was wild. 80 degree? <laughs> 80 mile an hour winds. God, it's too hot. Um, past two days, yesterday it got up to 102 here. I think the like hottest temperature ever recorded in like Wales, Scotland, England was yesterday. Um, pretty brutal. Not Northern Ireland though, funnily enough. Um Things are getting pretty weird. I went to go for a run yesterday, and I don't know if, like, there were wildfires around here, if it was just the ones on the continent, but, like, up where I went to go, it was very smoky. and I had to stop, so it's felt very weird these last few days. I think we only thought it good. We'll talk about some ecology and whatnot mm, it's today. It's been sweltering. It's, it's been very close. <laughs> um, mercifully not, like, horrifically humid. Mm. So there was that, at least. It's funny that they've been talking so much about because there was a, there was an incredibly warm summer in the 1970s here, the 1976 mm. or something, and they um, people keep bringing that up in the media yeah. and what have you. But all of these records that were actually broken yesterday, all of the records that existed prior to yesterday were all set in like the summer of 2019 or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like okay, and then next year we'll break this year's record, and the year after that yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. It's um, it's uh. Yeah, climate breakdown is in evidence, I think, yeah. at this point. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it definitely is. I, uh, I've been wondering, I don't actually know anything about, like, when sea level rises are supposed to, or, like, expected to start happening. Hopefully not anytime soon. But let me get to terms with, like, it being 102 degrees in England every now and then before we get to that. But, um, yeah, absolutely getting more and more evident. And I felt uh, a little bit of despair yesterday, I think, and maybe the day before as well. So, you know, that's where we're coming off of. Um We've had this conversation before about, like, despair and just, like, sadness that you feel every now and then versus the, like, get up and go, like, oh, I want to do something about this. And it's just constantly a trade-off. I think I've had to tell myself that, like, there are just going to be times where you just feel like it's completely hopeless. And then you're going to come back and you're going to be manic and it's going to be like, oh, my God, the class struggle is happening. You know, look at this. So yesterday was not one of those mm. days. <laughs> well, I think this week we've discovered the king of get up and go. Huh. Like, Murray Butkin. Oh, sure. Once oh, again. Yeah. <laughs> king. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I only say that because, like, he's a massive advocate of uh, mm. direct action. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, the listener can see for themselves who we're reading this week. And indeed, Dan, you just said... Um, I gave it away. Gave it away. Murray Bookchin. But, I mean, I've been... I don't know. I was thinking about this because we've read Murray Bookchin once before. Um, but... Um, even though I don't think we necessarily hold to, like, any ultra-specific ideology, um, I think that there are, like, at least some kind of, like, ideological through lines that we can maybe see that we're either starting to develop or, like, that you could kind of draw through most of what we've done, say, like, the past year. Um, it might seem a bit erratic if you were to just look at it, but it all hopefully comes together in something re resembling a coherent train of thought. Um I feel like, though, Dan, the listener might now see that we're reading Murray Bookchin again and be like, all right, this kind of doesn't really fit in with, like, the systems theory or the Perry Anderson, Ellen Meeksons Wood, like, Brennerism stuff. Um, what do you think? Do you think that this fits in in, like, a coherent way with what we've been talking about? Or is this just something completely out of left field where we were like, we're going to discuss this like we discuss an Errol Morris movie? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a this is a an idea that Jack put to me just before we started recording <laughs> that resorting to reading Murray Bookchin might be equivalent to resorting to watching an Errol Morris movie where we're just like, what the hell are we going to do this week? Okay. We'll read Bookchin. We'll read Murray Bookchin. Okay, 
<laughs> and it's not like we've continued reading the same Murray Butchin book that we read like two and a bit years ago. We've just started a different Picked one. A new one. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of it as kind of a return to form and there's a bit like what we used to do, which is pick a book and then read the first chapter of it and then talk like we had read the book or knew what we were talking about or we could represent the book fully. Um, I was I was also thinking about it as a bit of a, like a, a palate cleanser, you know? We're sort of like coming off of the back of, I don't know, read, maybe, I don't know whether there's been, as you say, any kind of... Uh, uh, intellectual or ideological through line <laughs> in the things that we've been reading. I don't think this is a break. I think this is just a little bit of a... Uh, Je ne sais quoi. <laughs> just a little... Uh... Just a little bit, of, once again, returning <laughs> to a little bit of dabbling with our favourite anarchist friend. Yeah. Um, so, yes, there's a certain amount of just like, we'll just be a bit playful this week. Mm. We'll read some Murray Book Jim. We're like, lol, we've Googled Murray Bushkin again. <laughs> <laughs> I will say. Um, but I think also there are some there are some um, connections, I think, to be made, um, which I suppose we can get onto. But I think mm -hmm. there are some connections, particularly to viable systems and yeah. this kind of thing, which um, and system theory in general. Mm. If it, I mean, with with future great, great with greater knowledge from us and having read other things in the future, I think you could. Um, <laughs> oh my god. Let's my banana. Yeah. <laughs> um I think uh in the future we will reflect on this and be like, actually there is some connection. Yeah. Whatever. I think so. I mean, I don't know, we'll see. We'll get on to all of like what we read and all of this stuff um here in a moment. But um I'll just say it, the men rocks. This stuff, this stuff rocks. It's very cool. I mean, we'll get on to our criticisms of like, you know, the old Mr. Book chin here in a moment, but like when I was reading this, it, it's like the Leftcom stuff. You just get so excited when you read it. And then when you finish it, and you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. you know. But while you're reading it, like it's so good. And I will say, other than all of the times that Murray Bookchin misses, he doesn't really miss. It's very, very good. Um, the, there's a lot of like different layers to this. I suppose we should say what it is we're actually reading. Um, it is classic Murray Bookchin text, Toward an Ecological Society, we read, it's just a collection of essays about, you know, ecology and sociology and anarchism and these kinds of things. We read the introduction, but we also read the first two essays, The Power to Create and The Power to Destroy. That was one essay. And Toward an Ecological Society. Um, in which he's kind of putting forward various ideas of um, what he thinks we need to do, uh, et cetera, et cetera, how we're going to get there. A little bit of philosophy, a little bit of like kind of his brand of political theory, um, a lot of ecology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Overall, I did really, really like this. Just like, it's the same feeling as when we read Murray Bookchin the first time. It's like, fuck, this rocks so much. It's like, okay, there are all of these holes with it, but like, who cares? This is just, it's extremely refreshing, I think is what I'll say. It doesn't feel academic. It just feels like the like dude from Brooklyn who's just telling you like how it is, man, and what needs to happen. And as you said, it's incredibly prescient. Uh, the first essay was written in 1979. The second one was like 74 or 75, something like that. And uh, dare I say, Dan, I think it's ahead of its time. It's very good. Yeah, I think I feel very similar to you in that I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think the first Murray Bookchin text that we read, I forgot <laughs> what it was called, was quite, um, it was deeply philosophical. Mm. Um, it was very heavily laden with Murray Bookchin's um, fidelity to Hegelian philosophy mm. uh, and also very heavily anthropological in some ways that I think maybe went over my head as well. This was sort of the perfect synthesis of like scathing polemic in a way which sort of I can read this text and sort of almost hear him ranting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in an incredibly eloquent way. Yeah. So it's incredibly enjoyable to read. And also, uh yes, as you you're right to say, it's sort of like it does weave together these threads of sort of like anthropology and um political theory in a way which is very engaging very easy to understand mm. and i think also although we did just take the first few essays from a collection of essays <laughs> and then decide to make a podcast episode about it i think these these three essays do hang together quite nicely well the introduction of the first two essays mm. in this book hang together quite nicely as a kind of broad overview of some of his attitudes toward ecology and what that means and the way in which he is synthesizing or even prioritizing uh, thinking around ecology as being central to his outlook on politics and political theory and sociology mm. and uh, what is to be done. 
what is to be done, mm. indeed. I love that he rants against the man in the White House, and it's just Nixon. I don't know. That cracked me up so much. He's like, well, the man in the White House would have you believe we're winning the environmentalist struggles. And it's like, he's talking about Nixon. I don't know. Just the idea of, like, Murray Bookchin's arch nemesis, <laughs> you know, Nixon, is just very funny to me. I don't know. Both very funny people. Mm. Um, I've been wondering... Do you think there would be a Bernie Sanders if there hadn't been a Murray Bookchin? <laughs> that wow, <good> question. <laughs> wow. All right, interesting. We'll have to say uh, only that. in the sense that, like the, I feel like the the greatest <laughs> impact Murray Bookchin's philosophy has had has been an influence in the sort of like political milieu of the kind of the people uh, of Vermont. Yeah, the people yeah. of Vermont, or the sort of like the the sort of northeast of America, the Ben and Jerry's types, yeah. perhaps, yeah. perhaps. Um, Perhaps. Yeah. It's a good question. <laughs> also, they have a similar style of like... Yeah. 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 I don't know if I would want to sit next to either of them at a bar, quite no. <laughs> Bernie would be more endearing. I said this last time we talked about Murray Bookchin. Bookchin would just talk your ear off and you'd be like, yeah, whatever, man. You'd be like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do... I guess it depends what kind of mood you're in. Sometimes you run into these people who are <laughs> enthralling, but also... Just gonna yeah, run and never let you go. Yeah, it's like I guess I, I don't think it will be a fun night out at the bar. It depends, <laughs> it depends what mood you're in, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, what are you gonna do? Um, I don't know. The, these, as you said, these three things that we read all flow together very nicely. So I don't know if there's any point in necessarily going through them chronologically. And in fact, right now I'm gonna do the exact opposite because I think that the last paragraph of that essay sets things up very well. I'm just gonna read it real quick. He says. I suppose I could discuss these issues endlessly. Indeed, Murray Bookchin, you probably could. Let me conclude on a rather ruthless but honest observation. The unique freedom that could await us results ironically, or should I say dialectically, from the fact... <laughs> maybe, That's the way we use the word dialectics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Should you say that? I, yeah, I guess. Maybe it's dialectic. Who knows? Yeah. From the fact that our choices are woefully limited. A century ago, Marx could validly argue that the alternatives to socialism are barbarism. Harsh as the worst of these alternatives may have been, society could at least expect to have recovered from them. Today, the situation has become far more serious. The ecological crisis of our time has graduated society's alternatives to a more decisive level of futuristic choices. Either we will create an ecotopia, which we'll get into that word, it rocks, based on ecological principles, or we will simply go under as a species. In my view, this is not apocalyptic ranting. It is a scientific judgment that is validated daily by the very law of life of the prevailing society, which means bourgeois society. It was written in 1974. That's yeah. pretty killer. How often do you think he was told he was just an apocalyptic ranter? <laughs> yeah, every I think day. probably quite a his lot. His editor, his publisher, <laughs> yeah. his friends, the people at the bar. Yeah, but yeah, what that 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 I mean, in so many ways, that um, uh, end paragraph is startling. Mm. You're incredibly correct to point out that it was 1974, and to and I mean. Throughout his writing, it's evident that he takes the ecological crisis very seriously, and he seems to be seeing things that, well, I suppose they must have been evident to experts at the time, but nobody had been, he was the first person to start to synthesize these ideas together mm. and sort of try and popularize them, I suppose and suspect, <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but also, it's almost become a truism, it's almost become a bit trite to say that, like, once upon a time, it used to be socialism mm. or barbarism, and mm. now it's just, like, socialism or death. Yeah. Um, but... If you ever want, I, I think Murray Butchin can probably lay claim to being the first person to flip that mm. on its head and be like, no, mm. like we either have socialism or we, we like we drive ourselves to the point of extinction. Yeah. Um, and he does, it, yeah, that sort of, that um, the dialectical tension around this is made quite evident in this text because he's constantly talking about, basically in order to survive, we have to set ourselves free almost we almost it's it's got this intense i mean almost from the introduction onwards there's this intense commitment to um an an ethics which is um well the, 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 maybe it may have phrased it again like the central tenant of his political theory through this is that um we have to have what he calls libertarian communism or that mm. you can call it whatever you want um or we die <laughs> and um, it's not like utopianism anymore. Once mm. upon a time, uh, pre the Industrial Revolution or whatever, like you had these utopian thinkers and they would just imagine societies, sort of perfecting societies with their own plans or whatever, um, a tendency which Marx rightly criticised. Mm. Um, but at this point in time, given the development of technology 
Um, and also, more central to his thinking, given the impending catastrophe, we really have to fix this. Mm. And it's not even a matter of just like fudging the fix. We have to liberate ourselves, set ourselves free. And it's only through the actual um, character of what a libertarian communist society would be can we actually preserve our existence on the planet? So that's God. the point he's making, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I was trying to figure out if that was all just coming, that analysis was just coming from like a, they're cutting down the forests, man. And when it get, you know, if we had no more forests, it's going to be a bummer. We just, you know, no more national parks or whatever kind of thinking. But no, it, like he lays it out. It very clearly comes from like a very clear analysis of bourgeois society and of capitalism and of this understanding that, we no longer manage production. In no sense, production entirely manages us. And if you take the, like, tr you know, the fact, just the fact that everything has become a commodity now, um, to its logical conclusion, everything in the environment has become a commodity. And if it's profitable to, uh, you know, exchange for that commodity, whether it's a rainforest being leveled or whether it's, you know, raw resources being ripped from the earth, um, it's going to happen, right, as long as it's profitable to do. So he understands his political theory, I suppose, Definitely, like, to a certain extent. He's definitely not just pulling this out of, like, some hippy-dippy, like, love for, you know, our ecosystems, dude, or whatever. Um, he lays in pretty heavily towards the beginning on, like, anything that he thinks smacks of, eco or of economic determinism. So, like, anything that in a, as a, um, what's the word, like a vein of political thinking that is emancipatory, any kind of emancipatory political theory that is based entirely around the economic question, he's, like, allergic to. He's just like, this sucks, it's bad. And it comes down to, like, classic Murray Bookchin, it's hierarchy, man. Um, and he gets into some pretty interesting theories on hierarchy and all of this, but I think it's worth pointing out his understanding of the ecological crisis is definitely based around, like, you know, bourgeois society and of the trading of commodities and all of these different things. But um, much like when we read our good friends, the left comms, the council communists, and they're allergic to any kind of like party or organization or thing like this that's sliding over the working class, Burchin like obviously goes further and he's just like, you know, anything that is decidedly economic in its political thinking is bad, dude, because you can still have these forms of hierarchy that are going to lead to like either kind of environmentalism, which he hates, or, you know, kind of like more social hierarchies, men over women, old over young, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, he ties, he ties all this up in a really refreshing, interesting way. And while the whole kind of like economic determinist thing is a little bit like, okay, well, you know, what about both? Maybe, perhaps, why not? Um, it's all fascinating. And I think he does a very good job of dialectically working his way through it all, I suppose. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I think we encountered this last time we read him. Like, he has this uh, reverence for Marx. But I think he also thinks that he may have made some uh, fundamental flaws. Mm. But he does really have this massive disdain for Marxism. Yeah, uh, fair. Mark, the Marxist party. Because he's he's come out of that tradition, right? He comes out of the, like, I think he's in the, he's like in the youth wing of the Communist Party so, of yeah. USA or whatever. So um, I think he's definitely come out of that tradition and come out of, like, trade unions and that kind of thing. Um and there's, this couple, there's a couple of, like, in the early stages in the introduction of this, there's the, he has these, he has a few villains. Um, one of them, particularly as they pertain to the, his reading of the landscape of the ecological movement, mm. I suppose. Um, there's the kind of, like, managerial elite. And we, all, we sort of know these people now, I suppose, the people who work at the non-profits or the, the charities, um, people who um, are part of that sort of hierarchical structure of um, organizing uh, protest and resistance to any number of different degradations of uh, the environment or, I mean, the same structure applies to all like mm. non-profits and charities and that kind of thing. Um, obviously, he's scathing of them because he really wants to champion the autonomy of the people involved in the movements and doesn't want to see... Uh, that autonomy given over to this bureaucratic hierarchy, which in the end is always going to drift towards sort of like reformism and compromise mm. and blah, blah, blah. And then he's also really scathing of the sort of the Marxist academic, the Marxist organization. I think he just refers to them as socialists in general, the way that <laughs> socialists are interacting with the environmental movement because they also seem to come along with this sort of like bureaucrat bureaucratized hierarchical structure. Mm -hmm. Um which, as you say, he seems to like 
he suggests is a result of their commitment to reading all social struggle as being uh, economic in origin mm. and the primary political struggle is overcoming economic exploitation and classical anarchist fashion as you say he's sort mm. of like um has a more expansive reading of politics right now whether we agree with his characterization of marxism whether we do or don't like i i um I'm very interested in how central the sort of economic reproduction of society then leads into all the other uh, characteristics of society that sort of come above it in the sort of classic base superstructure model, mm. although we would assume that, assume that metaphor in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so I don't agree entirely, but certainly we should all be on the, always be on the lookout for... Um, unnecessary hierarchies that are forming mm. and obviously we're not pro hierarchy right so, <laughs> this is a pro hierarchy um, podcast yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> um so we're certainly with i think Murray Bookchin in yeah. in that uh tenor and tendency yeah i mean i think i think it's fair i think uh a lot of times you know commies and marxists in general or whatever a socialist is right tend to not privilege hierarchy really at all i mean what can you say about anarchists right anarchists are like all about the concrete they're all about, like, direct action, what's going on around you, your interactions with everybody, and, like, the emergent totality of the whole. Like, okay, perhaps, you know, we'll think about that later. Like, let's just do what we can do right here, man. And I think, yeah, that idea that he brought up of, like, the managerial radical I think is really interesting. Like, I think he's absolutely right, quite frankly. I mean, he he says that the managerial radical becomes this kind of, like, bureaucrat within these structures, right? And they're much more concerned with, like, method over goal, right? Like, how is it that we should actually be organizing? And you see this all the time. I'm sure everybody who's tried to get involved in, like, any kind of social movement has seen people like this. I mean, we see it with the Black Lives Matter campaigns where, like, the actual, like, many of the concrete on the ground organizers have been doing, like, fantastic work. But then they kind of, like get swatted with a stick by like the kind of like you know larger blm tm you know like uh overarching movement um as a whole this there was like very like this happened in huntington beach classic um and this is like kind of where his kind of like anarchist theory of direct action i think directly comes from because it's like you don't want to be concerned with the method you want to be concerned with actually getting things done and this is like the concrete right like maybe a lot of marxists do whatever that means like a lot of marxists do privilege like no, we need to build this party now. We'll start with me so that then eventually we can create this like emergent wing of the working class that does the revolution. Bookchin is just like, whatever, dude, I don't even want to think about that. I just want to set up soup kitchens and go like chain myself to a nuclear reactor. Well, that would probably be unadvised, but like, you know what I mean? Like, um, so it's interesting. I like, I, like, I don't know. I never really fault people for thinking like this at all. Because the typical, like, you know, haha, I'm a smart communist uh, response to this would be like, well, what is your end goal here? Is this actually going to help bring about a revolution? You need to be thinking a million steps ahead so that everything you do is building towards this, you know, hedging our bets perfectly to have the perfect revolution kind of thing, right? Whereas, you know, I don't know. He's just thinking, like, what can I do now to make things a little bit better? And this is, you know, you get Marxists, like, laughing at anarchists for, like, chaining themselves to trees. But it's like, hey, you don't see us doing that. And it's, like, good for them. I don't know. So while there are criticisms to be made, I'm, I'm not fully on board with it. But it's, like, good for you, you know? It does seem like Murray Bookchin's is a piece of classic um, prefigurative politics. Mm. It's that contradiction between um, can you live the future society now almost? And that's what he is advocating, right? And so that's why he is um, uh, selecting a certain repertoire of tactics over another, uh, but then also really prioritizing the autonomy of the individuals because it's their activity organizing protest, which is teaching them to take control of social and everyday life um which is going going to lead to build the foundations for the future society kind of thing and there are certain elements of um other radical traditions the marxist tradition which would um recognize sort of those ideas right in terms of uh organizing the workers movement so that it can then organize society mm. um but there are sort of tendencies i think within um the marxist or socialist tradition which is also very much well we can't know what the future society is going to be. We can't know what communism is. We're very much locked into our present understanding, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like yeah. also what you were saying about um, the kind of like base superstructure um, 
kind of analogy that you get with a lot of like kind of, you know, surface level Marxism, which I think is actually a lot more helpful than a lot of Marxists give it credit for, at least to just kind of like show people here's kind of what's going on a little bit um, as an introductory thing. Like he has this really interesting theories. He has interesting theories about where hierarchy came from. And it kind of transcends this base superstructure idea a bit because he'll be the first person to tell you capitalism, it like thrives on the kind of hierarchy, like the patriarchy, like men over women. It thrives on old over young. It thrives on all these different things on, you know, structural things like, you know, worker, supervisor, manager, et cetera, et cetera, hierarchies like that. But um, he also says that hierarchy came well before capitalism. And he's like, you would just be wrong to think otherwise because he's like, just look like feudalism men, you know, had this hierarchy over women and it happened before that. He kind of takes it back to like the dawn of civilization, quote unquote, whatever. All I can really say about that is like, not anthropologist, couldn't tell you. Sounds pretty convincing to me. Like I get it. Um, but he, he's absolutely right. And this goes back to his economic determinism that he is like, you suck economic determinism because you can't think of this base superstructure simply like that. Like patriarchy comes because capitalism, class society, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, dude, you could set up a like economically just quote unquote, like society and still have all sorts of hierarchies. And that's absolutely true. Like, I don't know. I would suggest people read Murray Bookchin just for that idea, because you could totally set up. I mean, the Soviet Union had the bureaucratic caste. That was a hierarchy. Like, we have all of these hierarchies that aren't just going to go away at the snap of a finger, right? If you could do one thing to help, it would probably be getting rid of class society. But, you know, something to keep in the back of your mind, revolutionaries, I guess. Yeah, I think we would be the first to champion um, looking at the uniquenesses of capitalism mm -hmm. in order to overcome it in some ways. Um not reading capitalism back into the past, into future, into previous modes of production. Um, but at the same time, it's very definitely the case that if you just took capitalism as your model and were like, okay, here are all the inequalities of capitalism. Here are all the things that result from our understanding of this economic model. Let's get rid of those. Mm. But as we all well know, there are, there are many forms of oppression which pre-exist capitalism, ones which capitalism got got rid of because they were unnecessary to it, ones that it kept around because they were necessary or necessary to it or um, it didn't care about either way, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you very much do have to look all the way across history to um, have a full understanding of the history of human beings' capacity to repress and exploit others. Mm. Um, and I mean, Marx sees that, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, the history of all of the two existing societies yeah. is the history of class conflict, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, there have always been um, oppressive classes, oppressive castes. There's always been various forms of exploitation in one way or other. Um, and Murray Butchin gives a very classic explanation of that. Um, and what he does in a really interesting way is to sort of tie that into the ecological crisis, right? Mm. And his his one of his axioms, I suppose, is that um, the exploitation of the environment by man is a direct result of man's exploitation of man. Mm. Um, those are the kind of... Just, I've adopted his gendered language because that's the one he yeah. uses, although he is very careful in the way that he uses well, sort of... But then he says it's... Yeah, that comes from but, man versus man. But yeah, then, then, then it, it becomes the sort of like... But one of the, the one of his initial steps in that process is the exploitation of women by men, mm. uh, the exploitation or the sort of like dominance of the old over the young kind of thing. Um, so there are these sort of like hierarchical structures that creep in with uh, the sort of advent of settled farming and the Neolithic revolution, mm. that old bugbear of ours. <laughs> and there's a lot of overlap with the Marshall Solons here, right? There is. Uh, and other sort of readings of this sort of like anthropological process of the development of... Um, "Quote unquote, like civilization mm. and the sort of growth of um, uh, the size of human populations, uh, the size of their settlements, the types of their agriculture, the development of their technolo technologies, um, and written into that uh, technological that description of technological advance is also this sort of like advent and advance of new and more complex forms of exploitation that come mm. as part of that process." Um, what's really interesting about his analysis. Um, is that it doesn't then make him some kind of primitivist. He's yeah. not like, 
okay, it was the hunter-gatherers that had it right. And, well. and well, yeah, we don't know, I don't know whether we agree with this point, but it was the hunting, it was the sort of, what are they called, immediate return hunter-gatherers that yeah. had this right. And then after the fall of the... Uh, <laughs> of the plough. Sort of Neolithic revolution <laughs> and the advent of the plough and the wheel and what have you, um, that was the that was the collapse into uh, oppressive class societies and we should just go back. Um, his is almost, and it, he seems to, um, seem, there seems to be another parallel with Hegel here, right? Hegel has this idea that, well, I'm, I'm quoting Bookchin, quoting Hegel. I don't have any <laughs> authentic original knowledge of Hegel, <laughs> lest anybody be confused. I learned all of my Hegelian <laughs> philosophy through Murray Bookchin, okay? But he talks about Hegel suggesting that um, <laughs> for human beings to become fully what they were able to be, they had to like be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Mm. Um, yeah that was fascinating and his his take on that is very similar like there is this necessary arc that goes from the advent the advent of agricultural society and the sort of nascent types of exploitation and oppression that come along with that and we sort of go through this process it's almost a bit teleological in some ways Mm. we go through this process of all of these stages of uh, class exploitation but they get us to a and sort of the growth of technologies as well but they do also get us to a point where well it's a tra- it's a transition for him from human beings existing in some kind of synthesis with nature and then as quote-unquote man learns to exploit man and le- man learns to exploit women and this kind of thing we also learn to exploit nature or start to exploit nature. And it's only when we get back to the point where we are able to live in synthesis with nature once again, will we have um, entered the sort of realm of freedom, mm-hmm. I suppose, which he thinks is so necessary because otherwise we all die. Yeah, otherwise we die. Yeah, yeah I remember thinking last uh, time we read Murray Bookchin that I was very, I almost thought that he was like, he came across as a bit of like a technological determinist in some ways. Um, but it's interesting the way he talks about technology here, whether it's like the Neolithic revolution or these various things that have kind of, you know, inventions along the way to get to now. Um, I really thought it was interesting the way he spoke about like using technology in an ecological society because, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe we should back up a bit because first we should, I suppose, we haven't said this now, 30 minutes in. The point of this book is to put forward a radical ecology, right? Like, duh. Like, that's what he's trying to do. Um, and he, I found, like, four different things that he tries to put forward as necessary for radical ecology. One's just decentralizing. We'll get into what that means. Because um, it isn't just, like, scatter everybody around everywhere, dude. Um, re-regionalizing, like, food production in a way that makes sense. Ten stars. Thumbs up. We like that, Murray Bookchin. Um and then diversifying technology and scaling it, which I'll come back to, but then also like this idea of like direct democracy, face-to-face democracy. And they all kind of tie together in this nice, like, nice, like neat little package. And this is how we're going to solve the ecological problems, right? Um, but the idea of like diversifying technology, I really thought was interesting because he doesn't come across as this just like Luddite prick, right? He's not like, we need to go burn everything down. All technology is bad, man. But he's basically just making the point that like the technology that we have now is not being utilized in a good way. So he's basically saying we need a like people's technology. We need to scale it back down to like understandable scales. This gets into his like Hellenic direct democracy ideas. Um, And we need to diversify it. And again, I think this is all just like an easy to understand kind of like fancy way of saying like technology for utility and not for exchange, not for like, you know, production for exchange, things like that. Um, and I think once I understood all of these ideas, I was like actually pretty taken with it. And like his history, his anthropology, all kind of does come back to this interesting point. I would wonder, like you said that it is bordering on teleology and I, I think I definitely agree, but it's also like there is room for like, as long as we get out of the Garden of Eden and his like anthropological history, as long as we stop being hunter gatherers, it's like anything can happen in between then and like now when we need to do the socialism thing or the anarchism thing or whatever. It doesn't really matter what it was. It's all hierarchy. It's all bad. It could have been like absolutism. It could have been this much production. It could have been that. But it did lead us to this point where now everything is built up. We have this capitalist thing that's allowed us to build up the productive forces to the point where, okay, now we need to think about changing everything. Um, but yeah, having said that, radical ecology, I think I'm on board. And I'm fully on board. Um, yeah, the technology stuff is interesting. I suppose maybe it makes sense to go just into, like, the direct democracy stuff. Because it's weird. He talks all about how he isn't a, like, 
uh, you know, let's not look to the past or anything. We need to create something completely new. But then he comes out and is immediately like, but having said that, like, what were the like Greeks doing back in the day with their direct democracy, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> yeah. What about the town hall meetings of the 17th century or yeah. 18th century America? You know? Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, who was working in the fields? <laughs> wait a minute. I think one point on technology, which also applies to the kind of like direct democracy, decentralization question, I think what he seems to be implying also, and this is, was implied in what you said, um, is that technology also ought to be made comprehensible to people. It ought to be like democratically accessible. Mm. Um, like the technology should be scaled to the, to the sort of like size of the society so that... Um, the society, whatever so that, that subunit is, whether it's the sort of small city in the sort of Hellenistic vein, I suppose, <laughs> um, people are then in a position to control, to, I suppose, monitor and actually work upon this technology themselves, I suppose. Mm. Um, but I think like it's, it's uh, sort of like classical anarchism to be like... Um, and the only way to be anti-hierarchical in your organization of your society is to do direct democracy and small mm -hmm. scale and what have you. Um, but I don't think he's like, he's not sort of fetishizing those. He's not pulling them out of the air because that's what he's supposed to say. It's not sort of, it's not <laughs> utopian in that this is it. Once, once again, it comes back to his particular brand of utopianism, right? It's not utopianism in the vein of the 19th century utopian who is just creating their own blueprint out of nowhere for, for what society ought to be like. But again, it comes back to this question of the only way to actually, for human beings to actually survive and thrive is to live in this kind of form of uh, free, egalitarian, decentralized society, because that's the only way we can actually get a grip of mm. our impact on our local environment, our national environment, and our global environment, I suppose. Um, and live in synthesis with it. And that's what all of these, I suppose all of those elements of what his sort of future society is meant to be like is all around how will human beings live in some kind of synthesis with mm. uh, with nature. Which, I, yeah, I think that's very nice. I think that very nicely goes into Marxism, very nicely fits with it because it's like, Labor isn't the only thing. Like, you can't just be economic determinist. Like, the reason all of those are based around ecology is because the other part of your use values, they don't just come out of nowhere. You know, they come out of nature. And, like, that's explicit in, like, what Marx writes. That's, it, it gets forgotten a lot. And so it makes a lot of sense to, like, center your political thought, not just around labor, but also around your entire ecology. It rocks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the direct democracy thing, I think, is very funny. It's very, like, it makes sense. Like, it, it all ties up with his decentralization. Like, he really says that, like, in order to abolish the divide between town and country, which is necessary to create, like, this radically, like, ecological future, you need to have, like, these decentralized little hubs that are small enough for people to meaningfully engage with the politics of their little units and also built entirely around, like, the ecological, like, zone that they find themselves within. So... It is like a very neat little package. I'll say it again. Like it all fits together, all of his thinking in like many different ways. Um, I kind of wanted to go back to um, the sort of discussion of how he feels about uh, pre-agricultural hunter-gatherer societies and why he's not saying we need a return to this. Um, and a lot of it revolves around this sort of... Um, sort of development of technology, I suppose. And also sort of wanted to correct myself in suggesting that it's teleological in some way. Um, because in the introduction, he speaks at length about his idea of scarcity. And he's sort of suggesting that what is scarcity versus abundance for your sort of pre-agricultural immediate return hunter-gatherer is totally different to what the experience of scarcity versus um abundances to someone in modern society kind of thing um and so our sort of like our needs are dictated by the nature of the society which we live in and that's almost a good thing right he is championing the development of technology and he's championing the expansion of our uh, needs and our capacities um but he's kind of what he's saying is he doesn't it would be a um, he sort of admits that what we need to do is limit growth somehow. Um, but he's sort of suggesting that 
we have to choose to be able to do that rather than have it forced upon us. If we end up forcing that upon people, that's not um, the overcoming of scarcity and the living in a post-scarcity anarchist society kind of thing. Um, so I think part of advancing this capacity to choose, this capacity to determine for oneself is also part of overcoming the scarcity of pre-communist society, I guess. So there is this sort of essential development from stage to stage through history, uh, but it's not sort of teleological or circular. It's kind of like, a, mm. it leads, it's, it's, there, is a sp there is space for uh, history in the way that we understand it as sort of like uh, just random occurrences or like, yeah. uh, I don't know, material developments. Yeah. Something. It's not yeah. teleological, it's just hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's the way it worked, because that's the way it worked. Um, yeah, his ideas, you're right to touch upon the ideas of like scarcity and stuff, because obviously limiting growth, this is an idea that used to really scare me, I think, when I went from being like, communism is everyone having everything, to like, communism is everyone having enough so that we can like survive on this planet, right? Um, which we've been able to do for quite some time. Um, the idea, getting around that, like on one end, having your kind of like fully automated luxury, like everybody gets an infinity pool thing on one end and on the other end, just like, you know, the Jack Comet, just like return to nature, everybody kind of thing on the other end. I think he navigates actually really well in his like radically ecological society. And instead of saying that, like, we need to produce enough for everyone to have this like base standard of life, because it's like, well, what the fuck does that mean? What is a base standard of life? Presumably it would just be like food, shelter, water, and whatever. But it's like you could draw the line anywhere you wanted. Um, he ties it into like, we need to produce enough for everyone to have that base level of life. But we need to like tie it directly to a level of production that would, a maximum amount of production that would still allow everybody to be involved meaningfully in the political and like productive processes that go into that, which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Like, again, for him, he's the anarchist. It's all about the concrete, everybody on the ground being able to like, you know, meaningfully exert, you know, one person, one vote, that kind of thing, like literal direct democracy. And for him, that's what needs are tied to. Not this idea of like everybody gets a nice apartment, uh, enough water, enough food, a little tiny like fiat and like maybe a TV and that's enough. It's not like a weird like base level that some elite is uh uh, deciding for you it's a lot more natural and it's a lot more like well we can't go any bigger than this because if we go any bigger than this we're gonna have to have like a planned economy man and who's gonna do that um it's for yeah it's for it's interesting it's an interesting thought yeah it seems definitely to be um from each according to their ability to each according mm. to their need and he has this nice line about like um in sort of contemporary society we're all treated as equal but we're sort of unequal in our equality kind of thing whereas you'd like to flip that and be like recognize there's a degree of inequality between us in our capacity to work or what have you um and make us all equal in the face of that kind of thing mm -hmm. um but yeah it's not a uh not a it's not a ubi it's not a uh, <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah exactly i i do like this idea of that is a very easy way to say this is how we abolish town and country too because it's like Tied in with that, there's also the ecological idea of re-regionalizing food production, not only just because we don't want to waste, you don't want like a banana coming from like 3,000 miles away, you know what I mean? Just to be wrapped in plastic in America and then sent to the UK or something like that. Like, it isn't just about waste, it's about what actually makes sense. And it's an interesting way where a lot of people, a lot of Bookchin people will probably be like, it's just a cool way of like getting back to nature, man, being more like uh, in tune with your local ecology. But for him, it's much more practical. It's like, oh no, you need to understand what you can reasonably grow and regrow without just depleting the soil or et cetera, et cetera, where you live and not try and like force something horrible. Like, if you go on Google Maps right now and you look at, like, the south of Spain, easily from space, you can just see, like, miles and miles and miles of just plastic. Because those are just the greenhouses that they use in the south of Spain and they pay people, like, two euros every, like, eight hours or whatever. And it's just this, like, disgusting farm where they grow, like, old chilies for everyone in, you know, like, Europe. And it's like, okay, that's what we need to get away from. Um, so this gets into Dan and I, your, and I's, uh, love of like actual, you know, understanding how we can sustainably farm and stuff like that, but it also ties directly into production and directly into this idea of direct democracy. 
I keep saying it, but it all comes together very neatly. This is why we wanted to read this book, because we wanted to have our sort of like proto-hippie-ish tendencies confirmed to us so that we could slide further into the path of like, okay, let's grow all over. Have we spoken about no-till farming? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been thinking of you been talking about um, his reverence for the environment. We love um, it. And kind of what it means for human beings to live in harmony with the environment. And one of the things that was really interesting that he was championing was a kind of like um, reverence for um, ecological systems' ability to find solutions to their own problems. It's almost Mm. like you've got to sort of like champion the sort of harmonious balance of nature um, because that's what we live in (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but also coming back to this idea that like he is championing championing ecology and also um, representing the degradation of our natural environment as being so apocalyptic Mm -hmm. at a time when people weren't even talking about carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere kind of thing. And you can still rattle off a huge long list of sort of environmental crises of various different uh, levels of apocalypticness <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, but a lot of it just comes back, comes down to like a um, general degradation of the complexity of the ecological system. And he makes the point that when system, I think we've talked about this in the past, perhaps at some point or other, when systems reach a degree of a certain level of simplicity, there's the possibility mm. of them falling into crisis kind of thing. And there's, here's, here there is some overlap between like um, systems, theoretical thinking. Um, you've got insufficient variety in the natural environment to actually, or in the, in the, Going to get very complicated in my viable systems model language here because multiple u- in, multiple folks. uses of the term environment, but like an environmental system, if it's degrade the degradation of its variety, its internal variety is so much that it can no longer cope with the shocks mm. to its external environment, kind of thing. Um, you're going to get to points of breakdown, mm. and this is where we this is where we are now in 2021. It's not just global warming and the heating of the planet. It's it was 2022. 2022, sorry. <laughs> no, time, what is it? I don't know. Um, and uh, we're, getting to, <laughs> we're getting to the point where there are all of these impending breakdowns mm-hmm. in our various ecological systems. Um, there's all these kind of like horrific feedback loops that, that threat have coming mm-hmm. into place and we have some kind of... Jack's becoming more and more like stressed <laughs> as I talk. <laughs> God. Um, and it's almost this what this is what he can see in in the mm. 1970s right incredible impression um, and one of the things that i really find interesting is like he's got this line which is a bit terrifying where he talks about human beings now being in the position where they're actively undoing the work of organic evolution yeah. like we're actually reducing the evolutionary diversity of this planet rather than allowing it to increase because if mm. we allow it to increase we sort of like make it more resilient and stronger kind of thing mm. um yeah it's pretty terrifying it's pretty terrifying yeah, yeah. and i think i'll and, tell you yeah. well i was just gonna say i'll tell you where i think we talked about this before is in social contagion because when we talk yes. about strong this was like one of the reasons when they talk about you know the fucking real informal subsumption of plagues they talk about <laughs> real subsumption of plagues as going in of plagues yeah <laughs> as going into like a rainforest killing everything off so that there's no variety in the rainforest anymore. So like a duck walks by you and gives you like COVID-19 or something like that, right? Like obviously more complicated than that. It's the destruction of variety that otherwise in an ecological system would protect you from like unwanted plagues. The one sense that he uses to sum it up is natural diversity is to be cultivated not only because the more diversified the components that make up an ecosystem, the more stable the ecosystem, but diversity is... desirable for its own sake a value to be cherished as part of a spiritized notion of the living okay universe whatever but basically like the point that he's making and i think he uses an example that we've literally come across this exact example before either in schwang social contagion when we're talking about COVID 19 or in one of the various stafford beer related things that we've done of 
a tundra or a desert because it's like those are incredible those are systems with not much variety in terms of the food chain so it's like if you go to the tundra and you remove like i don't know like the rabbits the rabbits will die off some sort of like human related rabbit cancer or something like that well then the foxes can't eat anything and then what eats the foxes i don't know like the birds or whatever or like the bears then all of these things die off because you removed one thing it's like also like the example of a forest you take out the deer or, or you take out the wolves and then the deer eat everything and now the forest is just depleted whatever they're not eating trees they're eating grass um but it's the same thing and he's basically this isn't a moral argument which is probably what you get from a lot of like bookshin inspired people about like we love the environment dude listen dan and i love the environment dude it is the best possible thing but there's also a very practical element to this where it's like if we remove all of the variety from the ecosystem you're gonna get plagues and everything's gonna fall apart immediately mm. jack and i want to maintain our status as viable <laughs> systems and so we are quite dependent on a stable environment to that yes. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's so funny though because this is like oh he's almost there he's one of these people that's just like almost there you know what i mean because it's like Give this man Stafford beer and he would be a god. He would understand everything because like, okay, man, I'm fully on board with the like radical ecology of getting rid of town and country and decentralizing and direct democracy and all of this. But it's like, okay, let's just draw out the like re-regionalizing food or whatever like that or resource extraction. Typical anarchist falling point, I hate to say. Resources are not distributed evenly on the planet. So what's your political structure for getting, say, I don't know, this would piss them off, uranium or something like that. I don't know why, okay, uranium or whatever, to like California. What would be, how would you get coal to like a place that doesn't have coal? I don't know, presumably they have coal everywhere. But like you would need some sort of overarching structure where it isn't just maybe just direct democracy because things just aren't evenly distributed. And it's like, ooh, he's almost there. It's like, how do you do that? Man, you're talking about systems theory just Oh, just crack open, I don't know, one more button. One more, you're almost there. Yeah, I did feel like he was pushing very close to elements of the viable system model as it applies to uh, organizing organizations, I guess. Mm -hmm. How you could imagine a viable systems model being applied to um, organize or structure elements of a egalitarian society, whether that be a workplace or some kind of democratic decision-making structure kind of thing. Um, his... He's pushing up against, he, he is knocking, he's sort of pushing on the door of that idea kind of thing, mm. but never step, quite steps into it. Um, one of the ways this felt most evident, or one of the ways in which I, um, I took an issue with him here, I guess, and it's, it's a problem because it's also an element which I, an element of his thinking which also made this book really thrilling. Mm. One of the really thrilling and enjoyable things to read about this book is how his uh, po politics and his political theories are so uncompromising. Mm. And it leads to a lot of his polemical writings, right? Because, like, in the introduction, he's got this really strong ethic of, like, uh, he totally forecloses or eschews the possibility of, like, a politics based on trade-off and negotiation mm. and lesser evils. And he really feels like under the influence of these sort of like managerial elites or these sort of like quote unquote scary socialists or mm. what have you, the what he sees as the nascent ecological and environmental movement is slipping into this process of like bartering with states and corporations and we'll have this little bit of lesser evilism. Okay, we won't have mm. quite as much pollution as we have before. And this is kind of how it's how it has played out, you know, this is kind of how it's structured. And it plays into his distinction between ecology and environmentalism, right? Like ecology is this system of like that he's describing and environmentalism is just like uh, like limiting the damage mm. rather than... It's like, us outside the system as opposed to part of it. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so there is this kind of like really fervent commitment to this sort of like really uncompromising politics. And then there's these sort of... There's two... Uh, tactics which he really like, talks about in one of these essays um, one of them is direct action and one of them is affinity groups <laughs> um, and he's talking and, and it's really fun actually because he's like okay unlike some sort of like uh, um, tactics of some of these sort of like envi other environmental movements or whatever um, these aren't just like strategies to achieve a certain outcome they're actually essential to this process of overcoming uh, hierarchical society and getting into uh, sort of eco-communism, I guess. Mm, yes. um, the 
the activity of direct action is not just because it's most efficacious in that one particular protest movement, but because it actually teaches people to be autonomous and think for themselves and realize they can actually take action in the world, mm. uh, which is quite enthusing. And the same with affinity groups, right? It's like the affinity group is not just like something that forms itself what for one particular action, then it disappears and it's just like most appropriate to that thing. But it's actually the basic building block of like, building a new societal structure based on new types of relationship. Um, but the problem I had was like, how does this scale, right? Because this mm, is kind sure. of what we've experienced of the past 40 years of sort of like anarchism and environmentalism and sort of like uh, the sort of alter globalization stuff. You know, it's all kind mm. of like affinity groups and like small scale and like we'll build up, build up, build up kind of thing. Um, and I suppose it's sort of like... I mean, you could keep making the case that this is just what you have to do. And maybe at the time this felt more tenable. Uh, but now it's hard to imagine overthrowing capitalism predicated on a sort of ever proliferation of mm. anti-societal affinity groups and a greater and greater commitment to direct action. Yeah. Um, Although it's funny, though, because we're in a time when, like, to be the devil's advocate, you know what I think. Please. But to be the devil's advocate, all of the strikes that happened during COVID, at least in America had nothing to do with the left. You know what I mean? They just weren't involved at all. It was just people who were like, fuck, work sucks. Wait a minute, I've, like, my labor power's worth more now, I'm going to go on strike. So, I don't know. Yeah, you know, maybe. People will do things in their best interest. Yeah, maybe the know? communizers are right. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, God. We'll just have the insurrection. Yeah. This, this all reminded me of the classic uh, group of international communists answered to scaling up, which is just cascading system of councils dust your hands it's done <laughs> okay all right it's better than this it's better than just being like yeah i don't know <laughs> or just not mentioning it at all not mentioning that you're going to need some sort of like organization above all this what are you going to do um and i was also thinking about london as a city of like 20 odd million people and just being like yeah anyway this is a question for another podcast what to do about london yeah what to do <laughs> we know what to do about yeah. london dan um <laughs> I saw a headline. There were a bunch of fires all around, brush fires uh, and like flats catching on fire over the uh, last few days because of the heat and stuff. It's a headline that was, it was the most British way of phrasing this. It was firefighters busiest they've ever been since World War II. It's like, <laughs> that's an odd metric. That's like, so like, how can we relate everything to Winston Churchill? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is the most sort of like British tabloid headline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, if you're a Marxist and you read this and you don't learn anything, you're a prick. I'm going to say it. <laughs> and I think, obviously, like, if you're an anarchist and you read, like, something that we like, something, I don't know, Group of International Communists, Capital, <laughs> something <laughs> like that, like, and you don't learn anything, you're also a prick. But, like, this stuff is so necessary, I think. And I think we need a lot more people who, fr who frame front and center the ecological crisis. And, it's, and I just love the way... And all of the reasons I disagree with him or whatever, I just love the way that everything is based around e ecology. And he does it in this really interesting way that it's not really quite value theory or anything like that. It's not quite systems theory, but like he ties it all together. And he doesn't really make the point in this that, you know, the typical Marx quoting William Petty or whatever about, you know, labor is the father, nature is the mother or whatever of use values. But like, it, you see it in this. Like, we need to be treating these things equally. Like, it isn't all just about the economic question of labor. The whole point of his kind of systems theory-esque approach to the environment is to make the point, as you were saying, that environmentalism is not going to work because it places us outside of the environment as this thing that is somehow divinely above everything else to exploit the environment. He needs to say, no, how can we recognize, A, that we're in this environment, that we're a part of this system, we're not just aliens or whatever, and how then can we manage our resources and our extraction from that? Um, and it's so cool. And it, it just, it walks this line that I love between like uh, typical anarchisty, like chain yourself to the tree, you know, love the animals or whatever stuff. And just like, like this guy's read his marks and he gets it. There's a there's an essay in here, classically called something like Marx as a bourgeois philosopher or whatever, which I think we should get to <laughs> at one point. Sounds very funny. Um, but it just rocks. And I, th I hate to say it, everyone should read it. Read Murray Bookchin. Mm -hmm. He, yeah, he very differently does speak of the specificity of capitalism. Mm. And how he understands capitalism is very Marxist in its tenor and nature. Mm -hmm. um, he recognizes it as, as a 
system for the production of commodities and labor has become a commodity and like um blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> et cetera et cetera um so yeah it, if um i have no intention of suggesting that he doesn't recognize or understand the specificity of capitalism and he also has this great line of like contra the sort of like environmentalist movement which um doesn't recognize that we need to remove capitalism to actually solve the economic ecological mm. crisis rather he's just saying that like you can no sooner ask mm. people who live under the capitalist mode of production to stop uh, expanding values i suppose then you can ask a plant to stop photosynthesizing kind yeah, of thing it's exactly. just what the systems do the, yeah. the purpose of the system is what it does yeah, exactly <laughs> and it's funny because you would and expect you can't the stop opposite. capitalism from destroying the environment exactly and that's just like this weird breath of like emergence which i think is very funny because i think a lot of anarchists would just be like go shoot the dude with the tie working at the bank or whatever you know what i mean that that's unfair but you know what i'm saying um it rocks Ray Bookchin, the cover of this book, Dan. We haven't talked about it. Yet. Yeah, do you want to? Yeah, I just ooh, I just love the genre of book covers. That's like post-capitalist farms in the middle of high-rise buildings. I just love it. I mean, none of them are like high-rises. There's like a windmill next to like a five-story apartment flat. And yeah, there's like all, an orchard. They've all got like solar panels on. It's so and some of the houses have got like geodesic domes on them. <laughs> and like clearly, they're sort of like buildings of very different multiple uses. There's like an observatory. There's a guy like striding across the street. Look at this guy in the bottom corner. It's just like... <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. He is the king. <laughs> He's very cool. Um, and there's he... bicycles on the back of the bus. Um, <laughs> Several it, windmills, actually. The, yeah, a water wheel. A lot of windmills and water wheels. <laughs> Yeah, clearly he's not rejecting technology like the Greco-Romans yeah. did. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Um, one thing I also thought was very funny that we haven't mentioned is that in his first essay, he spends a lot of it being like, fuck nuclear power. It's the worst <laughs> thing that's ever happened. And I was like, this is interesting. No one was doing that. And I get to the end and it's like, okay, I need to do some research because I think I know exactly what's happening here. He wrote it like three months after Three Mile yeah. Island. So <laughs> it's like, okay, that understandable. All right, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We got to get to the bottom of nuclear power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know how I feel about nuclear power. I mean, it's not great, but you know, actually, no. I do know how I feel about nuclear power. We have <laughs> no solution for what to do with the waste. Yeah, none of sure. All. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the exactly. I mean, the typical response to that though is always like, "Well, coal waste just kills you because it goes into the air and it goes into the streams, man, and it kills way more people." And it's like, okay, yeah, it yeah. does. <laughs> You're right. That's also true. The waste, though. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, nuclear power demands a level of long-term thinking that we're just yeah. not able to. <laughs> and an understanding of like nuclear power, which yeah. we just and maybe have. and maybe he's just like this is a technology that we cannot democratize. Yes, so yeah, very maybe true. we just get rid of it. Um, <laughs> let's yeah. have a look, let's have our own local. Everybody has a nuclear power plant in the bottom of their garden. <laughs> is that it? Everyone's mining their own uranium. Yeah. <laughs> That's the typical, like, I'm a prick communist on Twitter response to, like, troll an anarchist is to be like, well, how are you going to uh, manage a nuclear power plant without uh, hierarchy? And it's like, yeah, okay, thanks a lot. Dude. You're being really helpful here. Um, something else I wanted to say on that. Oh, I'm a uh, loser. So the other day when I should have been working, I found a website where you can just go and look at all of the active... Um, power plants and what type they are, et cetera, et cetera, uh, where I come from back home in the States. Um, and, it, and it tells you their output in like megawatts, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very funny because like you click on a solar farm and it's like, oh, it, you know, it does pretty good. And then you click on like a natural gas plant and it's like, it does a million times better yeah. than that. And then you click on a nuclear power plant and it's just like, fuck it. Like all of this combined. It's insane. It, uh, they're pretty productive. That's why people okay. like them, I guess. Okay. So, yeah. Um, be nice to your anarchist friends. Because they are your comrades. Uh, you could say, be nice to your environment. <laughs> also be nice to your environment. Um, I, I, for one, am sick of this division, Dan. I think we need to squash the Bakun and Marx beef here on the show once and for all and say, welcome back, friends. Yes. Enough water has gone into this bridge, <laughs> yeah. I think. <laughs> one of my uh, funniest interaction with the kind of like typical anarchist uh type group is during the Occupy protests. I went down to Occupy LA a couple of times just to see what was going on. And it was pretty much by the point that I got there, 
a lot of smelly people eating porridge and like tents and hanging outside of Lake City Hall or whatever. But the funniest protest sign I've ever seen, I saw this dude just like sprawled out on a hammock and above him, it just said, fuck soy. And I was like, all right, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. <laughs> fuck soy. All right. He's the soy guy. He's the soy guy. Where's the hemp guy? Yeah, exactly. The hemp guy. We got to talk about hemp. Why did Bookchin not talk about hemp? Um, all right. Yeah. Marie Bookchin, read it, folks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll be back next time with something that isn't Murray Bookchin related. Sadly, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, we we we're gonna try and put our, all of our effort into reading a whole book, a whole book, rather than a few random chapters. Of <laughs> yeah. The book. To be fair, this is a random scattering of essays in here. They're all towards the same point, and he's building up to something. But one's from I, seventy-five. Yeah, I, one's from yeah, yeah. I'd like like in the middle of this book, there is a whole collection of essays on like actual ideas around more specifics around technology, around mm-hmm. organizing communities, about organizing cities and the town city country distinctions mm-hmm. kind of things. So. Then we should come back yeah. to this book and try and like read some of those middle chapters. And yeah. as you say, there's his, uh, his uh, attitudes toward Marx and Marxism are also <laughs> spelt out more thoroughly in some of these chapters. So yeah. we should have a look at those as well at some point. I wonder if producing, like if you were to just do like group of international communists, just like typical like labor time planning thing, if that would somehow on its own get rid of town and country divide. It would definitely like re-regionalize things to a certain extent, but still got to figure out what to do about London. I don't think that's going to solve itself. So It's a grotesque monstrosity. <laughs> it is. It yeah, we haven't seen it allowed LA, to Jesus. get as big as it is. Yeah, it's too big. It's sprawling. We're going to be in one of the zones here. I think we've talked about that before pretty soon. <laughs> we think so if we're not going to be underwater. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, London will be underwater. Yeah. So. We might have some nice beachfront property here. We'll see. Soon, soon, soon. Um, all right. Well, this rocks. Murray Bookchin rocks. Um, as Dan says, we'll be back next time with a book that I'm very excited to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the history stuff. No more of this anarchism stuff. No more of this reading stuff that we're super interested in. Back to the political economy <laughs> for us. Back to the podcasting grind. <laughs> yeah, to the trenches. <laughs> in the trenches, yeah. Um, I think also, I mean, we've made a commitment to try and do more ecological stuff mm-hmm. in the past, but I'd like to get back to that. I think yeah, we'd like to do that yeah. kind of thing because... So it seems increasingly pressing. Seems increasingly like, oh boy, let's do <laughs> so something may, about maybe that expect now. some of that down yeah. the line as well. For no other reason than I'm really hot. We need to do something about it. <laughs> I've been very hot for the last several days. Um, okay, well, yeah, I've been Jack. Uh, see you all next time. Go check out our videos on YouTube and our Discord, and whatever. And thank you, as always, Dan. <laughs> thank you, Jack. Thank everybody for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure. As ever. <laughs> we'll see you next time. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Yeah.